Welcome to OK, Let Me Tell You Why You're Wrong. Uh, today we'll be talking about Federal Reserve Policy. Now, if you're a regular listener, you may be thinking, wait a minute, is this a rerun? No, don't be ridiculous. This is a podcast. There are no reruns unless you download the same episode twice, and that's on you. Our previous episode uh, about the Fed focused on what the Fed is and why it exists. Now, Mari and I were pretty harsh to movements like and the Fed in that interview because, to our thinking, the existence of a separate institution for controlling monetary policy is really not something worthy of real debate. However, during that discussion, we mentioned that what can and often should be debated are the individual policies that the Fed enacts and the methods by which they enact them. And that is exactly what we'll be talking about today. Uh, to help unpack this topic, we've got our first guest with a PhD, uh, who actually teaches a class on the Fed and Fed policy, Professor Tim Opiala. Uh, Professor, before we get uh, started, uh, can you give us a little background on yourself? Sure. Um, I, um, I'll just tell you my uh, academic uh, career briefly. Um, I uh, went to Cal State uh, Sacramento as an undergrad, um, PhD uh, at Texas A&M University. Uh, my first um, full-time tenured track job was at University of the Pacific in Stockton, California, and I'm now at, um, at DePaul University in Chicago. Um, I had a couple of stints in between um, at um, other institutions uh, in Poland, uh, uh, Economics Academy in Warsaw, Wrocław in uh, Krakow, and I worked at the uh, Central Bank uh, in Poland in Warsaw. And uh, I've also taught um, uh, in Vietnam and Thailand and worked at the, uh, in the research department at the Central Bank in Thailand. So I've got a little bit of experience uh, <laughs> on, on, um, on how policy is made and uh, definitely on the theoretical uh, background behind uh, policy, uh, monetary policy. Just a little bit of experience. <laughs> so uh, as far as, as uh, you know, to, I guess we got to, for a, an issue that can get this complicated, we got to kind of start at the, th the top down. So I guess I'd ask, broadly speaking, uh, how how does the Fed even enact policy? Um, yeah, well, um, the uh, the way the the Fed um, puts policy, what you might call policy, in the pipeline to get it started, um, is that they um, in the U.S. or in, in countries that have well developed bond markets, they go into the Treasury bill market and they buy short term Treasury bills. And in doing so, uh, they're buying them from, uh, for example, investment banks, securities mm -hmm. dealers, and uh, they're giving them money for those securities. And so the central bank, our Fed, takes the securities and then they pay for them with newly printed cash. Uh, when that happens, uh, there are two things that really change. One is that more money goes into the um, economy uh, through the banking system. And the other is that since they're paying a higher price for uh, a security, a, a treasury bill, the interest rate uh, on that treasury bill drops. So you have the simultaneous effect uh, in conducting policy of throwing cash out into the economy and uh, reducing interest rates. Well, and I guess in that, because I mean that would fall under uh, what's called open market operations. That's what they're called, open market operations. Uh, in adding, uh, you know, capital to the or uh, you know money into the economy, uh, you know, I think most people, you know, hear that and and again thanks to the the, the way, 
monetary policy gets reported, uh, immediately make a connection to uh, increasing inflation, uh, which uh, most most people would consider an absolutely bad thing. I but obviously, you know, the the Fed's not doing this to uh, you know just to devalue money. So. Uh, what would the benefits be of of pushing more cash into the economy? Well, well, the goals of monetary, I, I guess I have to address uh, that question in terms of the goals of monetary policy, uh, which are um, uh, in, in the U.S. and in most other countries to um, uh, keep inflation fairly low because inflation, uh, uh, that is inflation in prices of goods and services, and the uncertainty associated with inflation tends to um, distort decisions that are made by consumers and by businesses. So they try to keep inflation low and, and steady. And uh, they also try to keep uh, the economy at full employment, which means keeping the unemployment rate, at least in the U.S., somewhere between 4 and 5%, uh, though that differs from country to country. And uh, also keep the growth of GDP at its potential, which in the U.S. is somewhere between 2.5 and 3 percent. Um, uh, another goal is to, to keep all those variables I've just mentioned, whether it's GDP, unemployment, or uh, inflation, uh, fairly steady. That is, keep them from fluctuating from high to low uh, and uh, so that people can make uh, more reasonable decisions on what's going on with prices, with output, with employment. Um, and so that's, that's basically their goal for the macroeconomy, to stabilize it in that effect. Recently, there's also been uh, thrown out after this financial crisis the goal of preventing uh, financial bubbles uh, from occurring uh, and also um, maybe better ways of popping those bubbles to where it, it doesn't cause a big mess in the economy. Mm. So financial stability is uh, a recent added um, goal that the Fed uh, uh, and other central banks usually tend to have. Well, because it'll, uh, you know, provide um, the, the, you know, even if things are trending downward, it'll provide more of a soft landing. Yeah, for... yeah, that's what they're into. But to answer the, these are the goals, but to answer your question in terms of, you know, uh, wh why do they throw money out and is this going to cause an inflation? Um, in, in general, uh, I, I guess I could state it this way, that you want to throw out enough money so that the economy can continue to grow. If more money is thrown out than a growing economy, that is at a much faster rate than a, whatever the economy is growing at, then it'll bid up prices. Uh, if you, however, throw money out at a very low rate or don't throw any more money out at all, uh, then it'll cause a stagnation in the economy because prices will tend to fall mm. rather than rise. You'll have a deflation, and deflations can be very damaging uh, to the economy. Uh, and so there, you have to throw out a reasonable amount, uh, whatever reasonable is, is whatever <laughs> doesn't cause inflation or deflation. But it's, it's sometimes best to err on the side of inf a little bit of inflation because once deflation starts, it's often difficult um, to get rid of it. Uh, as we know uh, uh, from the experience in Japan, in the Bank of Japan, 
they've had a, a deflation on and off for probably the last 20 years. Yeah, I actually was just reading an article about that and the, the you know, issues that has continually caused for Japan and, you know, trying to figure out a way to solve that. And, yeah. Uh, and, and that can be damaging because, I mean, if you think of it in simple terms, uh, if prices are dropping and you think they're going to continue to drop, then uh, as a bank, why would you want to lend, uh, you know, money out uh, to people if uh, the interest rates at that point are so low? It's better that you hang on to the money and it's going to be worth more later on. Yeah. And likewise for consumers or for business, why would you want to spend uh, when uh, when prices might be dropping at one percent or two percent? You can earn that per year just by hanging on to the cash. Yeah. So so deflations are not good. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, not not just on the, the, the lending side, but again, if you really feel like, even as a consumer, if prices are going to drop in the right. future, why would I spend my money right. now? But, but often people will say, that, you know, the common person will say things like, well, we want prices to go down because then we can buy more. Yeah, but for the whole macro economy, that does not bode well for uh, uh, for a long term uh, growth of the economy. Well, and I think that that's one of the things that, <clears throat> especially when um, you, you you see a lot of politicians uh, do this, and a lot of political groups trying to equate the macro economy to uh, some version of, of personal or home economics yeah. of, yes. well, if, I, if, if I'm expected to balance my checkbook and pay my bills, why can't uh, the, 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 the macro economy? And it's that, that kind of failure to appreciate just how different the, the macro is over the micro. Yeah, that's exactly right. What happens with you, excuse me, uh, personally, um, is not necessarily good for the whole country. Mm. And um, I mean, I, I'll, I'll mention this at this point because it fits in nicely, uh, in that even when policy tries to, monetary policy tries to slow down the economy uh, when inflation starts heating up, and so therefore they do the opposite of throwing money out, they pull it from the economy by selling their securities that they have, uh, treasury securities. But in doing so, that can often cause contractions and uh, cause unemployment mm. to start rising. And that uh, unemployment effect is not homogeneous uh, over all markets. Yeah. And so as a result, you have uh, adverse distributional effects where some areas of the economy are harder hit than others. And you might think, oh, look what the, what the Fed is doing. It's punishing people in poor neighborhoods or uh, punishing certain states more than other states, uh, some parts of the country more than other parts of the country. That might be true, but the Fed cannot um, look at individual areas, whether they be cities, parts of cities, states, um, parts of the country, and say, oh, you know, I'm going to target this for full employment rather than some other place. Mm. Because by doing so, you lose track of, uh, and you can't accomplish, national goals. So distributional effects are inevitable. Well, I think that also leads into another, you know, very common misconception of, uh, I guess, the, the, the idea of, of the level of control that the Fed has over the economy. Uh, you know, the one of the things Mari and I got into in the previous episode is this idea of um, 
yes, the Fed can influence it. It it swings a big enough bat that it can move the economy slightly one way or the other, but any kind of precision in that, you know, the, the whole thing is still susceptible to market forces. Right, uh, right. And there's, I mean, the big pro- problem with precision with what the Fed does, and they, they actually do swing a big bat, uh, and that bat is more powerful in slowing the economy down than it is in speeding it up. And that's uh, evidenced by the hard time uh, that the Fed has had in pulling us out of um, the financial crisis and the recession that followed. Uh, and uh, why it's so easy uh, when they start tightening for the economy suddenly to start decreasing uh, uh, its growth. But, but that precision also was mainly uh, affected by uh, the fact that when the Fed conducts policy, the effects it has on the economy are lagged. Mm. They, the final effects that any policy has in the U.S. probably don't show up for somewhere between six months to two years later. And once they do start showing up, you can't reverse uh, that policy. For example, if you start tightening uh, 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 policy by increasing interest rates and pulling money from the economy, uh, it might cause us to start going into a big slowdown that the Fed didn't have um, uh, uh, didn't have in mind when they first conducted policy. But they can't easily go back on that because they've already put policy in what you might call a pipeline mm-hmm. that's moving along and pops up six months to two years later. And you can't go back on it. In fact, if you put policy in place to try to reverse that somewhat, again, it takes six months to two years before it has an effect, so that's where it loses its precision it's like, in it, terms of the lag, and that's why policy is usual. Monetary policy since um, the late '90s and early 2000s has mainly been practiced by putting small pieces of policy in that pipeline, so that uh, you can see how it affects things, and then you can go back on it uh, without having uh, adverse effects. Large, large adverse effects, and that's what we tended to do in the past, uh, which I think monetary policy, recognizing those lags, uh, has improved their precision and their ability to achieve their goals. Well, and, and again, yet, yet another thing I think the Fed gets criticized for on the policy level, which I, you know, ba- based on the existence of lags, I think is probably um, not unjustified, but at least a little unfair is, you know, you've got people out there saying, well, why doesn't the Fed just raise interest rates up to, you know, uh, up five, six basis points? I think exactly because of that, you don't know exactly the effect that'll have, or uh, at least not with precision. So it's better to kind of slowly increase or slowly decrease uh, on either end, just to kind of wait and see where the economy is already going, because yeah, that's what they well basically they conduct policy like this. They make forecasts of what inflation uh, is going to do uh, over the next year. They make uh, forecasts on what they think unemployment might do, uh, GDP, um, and um, they try to conduct policy based on those forecasts. 
So they also then attach uh, some probabilities to each of those forecasts. So if they think there's a high probability of these uh, forecasts actually coming true within a certain time period, then they will be more likely to put a larger uh, change in policy in place. Mm -hmm. But if they attach a smaller probability that that is there is uncertainty, then they will put a small piece of policy in place. And uh, small, I mean, actually, what you mentioned, David, five basis points is very small. Yeah. Uh, if it were five percentage points, yeah. uh, that would be another issue. A, a basis point is 1% of one percentage point. So uh, what the Fed has been doing recently is it has been moving uh, rates by about 25 basis points or a quarter of a percent uh, at a time. And very seldom does it move uh, interest rates uh, any more than 50, 50 basis points or a half a percent uh, at a time in any one sitting, though it has done so uh, within a short period of time before. Oh, yeah. Uh, and then, I, well, and I, you know, I once, uh, yeah, as far as the, the, you know, the lags go, because again, steering the economy is is a lot like getting a, a, a you know, like a, a, a tanker ship to move once it gets momentum going it's really hard to, to turn it off and yeah. I remember reading uh, I was actually reading a book about quantum physics but they lumped uh, quantum physics in with uh, forecast or you know uh, predict predictability in quantum physics in with predicting weather and the macro economy because both of them were if, if people out there are wondering like well why can't they just be better at forecasting uh, the, you know, the reason being is that when you're dealing with something as large as the macro economy or even weather, there's so many factors that can't be captured in a model. The just random things. And, and that's, that's, that's it. There's something there that we don't know about that is causing things to deviate from that forecast. And you mentioned quantum physics at the, you know, at the extremely uh, subatomic uh, level. Uh, you you can the readers or the listeners can always refer to uh, what's called the double slit uh, mm. experiment uh, of light and uh, to see how uh, it, it shows up uh, in patterns that uh, are are not really clear where that those where light's going to land and uh, that's just it's just the way the world works mm. we there's no way that we can forecast things uh, uh, very accurately. Even though people think in physics that uh, you can do so, yeah, but at certain levels you cannot. Well, and, and, and you know, at the at the macro level in the economy, you know, whether whether or not one of our listeners uh, walks into a Seven Eleven and buys two Snickers bars or one is having an impact, very small, very minuscule impact. But there's no way for the Fed to predict that whether or not uh, someone out there is currently buying a car. That's all feeding into it, and you you would have to capture the the exchanges and purchases of we I mean more than just the U.S. population because it's a global market. So you know you, you you in order to accurately with with absolute precision predict the U.S. economy, you'd have to be tracking trillions of exchanges, uh, which is just it not not feasible. Yeah, David, what you're mentioning is the other piece of why monetary policy is not very accurate. It's not just the lag uh, in policy affecting the economy, but when it changes interest rates, let's just say by 50 basis points uh, in one period, and then it looks at the effect on consumption 
or the effect on investment expenditures farther down the road, six months to two years from now. Uh, but then if it conducts that same policy of changing interest rates by uh, a half a percentage point later on, say a couple of years later, uh, it, it sees that it has a different effect on consumption, that it, it wasn't as large or it's not as small as it was before. Uh, and, and you begin to wonder what's going on. Well, that's the inability for us to really figure out accurately how monetary policy affects decisions, behavior by people in terms of spending. And that uncertainty along with the, the fact that there's a lag between uh, policy and its effect on the economy, those two problems, uh, what we call the monetary implementation problem, uh, are the reasons that uh, any central bank has a hard time accurately achieving its goals. Mm. And uh, I mean, it seems like that that is just the nature of the game. There's there's in, unless you're a central bank for a population of ten people, uh, I don't know if you can if if any central then, bank could then really you crack. Need, then yeah. You wouldn't need a central bank. <laughs> uh, oh, just to go back to one thing, uh, just because I'm I'm sure you know it's one of those concepts that. Uh, people without a background in economics might hear and scratch their heads at. Uh, why would uh, a cent any central bank want to slow down the economy? Uh, that that se seems like a, one of those, again, common sense things. Don't we want the economy to... Well, I guess I think a, a, a good way to... That's, that's a good question because, I mean, I, people would ask, you know, don't you want it to grow? Uh, one of the things that have recently come up uh, in the Trump administration is that the current macro economy is growing too slowly, mm -hmm. that it's growing somewhere around 2% or between 2 and 2.5%. Two and um, if you look at uh, the U.S. in terms of real uh, GDP growth going back uh, over 100 years, the average has been somewhere around 2.5%. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's thought that that's the potential that the economy has in the long run. Sure, we grow above that during some periods and below that in some periods. But we find out that when we grow below that, that that is underutilizing labor and capital. And, and there are social effects to that, of unemployment, of course. So you, you don't want the economy there. You try to get them the economy closer to potential, that is to the two two and a half percent. If it goes above two and a half percent, it, it, what happens is the economy is growing so fast that people begin making decisions that may not come out well later. Uh, also, it creates an inflation in which it makes it harder to make more accurate decisions. And as the uncertainty surrounding inflation uh, increases, uh, people shy away from making decisions mm -hmm. and spending goes down. So whenever we have a high growth in the economy, we often get uh, an increase in prices, and it results then in a sudden slowdown within possibly a year or two years or three years, and that slowdown uh, causes us to go into a recession. But what you see going on right now, which is what most macroeconomists believe also, is that if you keep the growth rate of the economy somewhere around two to two and a half percent, you don't have an inflation mm -hmm. and you don't have a recession. 
we seem to be at full employment right now in terms of the unemployment rates at what, 4.4, 4.5? That's low. It's lower than it's been in, in, in a couple of decades. And uh, if we are at full employment, then the growth rate that we're enjoying right now, which is somewhere under 2.5% per year in real terms, that is when you take away prices, uh, it, it, that might be potential. And if that's the case, we can stay at that growth rate without going into a recession uh, or without causing an inflation for a long period of time. This, the, the current uh, expansion in the economy uh, started um, somewhere around uh, what the end of middle of 2007. So it's been going on uh, for almost 10 years. Mm -hmm. Well, again, oh, I'm sorry, I said 2007, no, uh, 2008, mm -hmm. that we actually started uh, coming out, 2009. Yeah. I'm sorry, 2009. Uh, so, so it's been going on for about eight years right mm -hmm. now. And if we speed things up, uh, there's a better, there's a higher probability that uh, it will cause an inflation and it will cause us to then start into uh, a slowdown in the economy. Well, and again, it's, it's like you had said before, that, that, uh, Fed mandate of keeping things on a pretty smooth path, right? Rather than having these choppy ups and ups and downs, decreasing which, the variance. Which, I, ironically, GDP. with you know sudden you know uh, rises of maybe five percent uh, growth, leading to a recession that has uh, potentially you know negative growth, leading to another uh, boom of maybe six percent growth. The average would still probably wind up at around two point five percent over that period. Of yeah, time. the average, but but that variance oh, yeah. uh, is what is thought to cause trouble. Mm -hmm. uh, both high growth that is too high, and the variance that is too high. And and I think we're we're I guess some people get hung up on that is is and and the the kind of looking at GDP growth. As, as a marker for success and making what what really is an apples and oranges comparison to other countries. So, you know, people look at the U.S. at, say, a 2% GDP growth and China at a 9% GDP growth and say, we're doing terribly, we're, we're losing, except while forgetting that GDP growth is, it's a percentage, so it's, a, it's relative to where we were at before. But it also has to do with uh, the stage that your economy is in. Exactly. Yeah. Emerging market economies have many opportunities that have not been utilized when they first emerge, and they're emerging from government control. Once you start releasing those controls, suddenly the economy can grow extremely fast. But we are a very mature economy. Uh, in which uh, growth is not driven by uh, foreign investment coming in to take advantage of opportunities or uh, deregulation, uh, huge deregulation and, and freeing of, um, uh, of state ownership is going to allow huge growth. Uh, we, we don't have uh, those types of things occurring in a mature economy. Uh, but maybe to some degree, there are little things that pop up like that that mm. are thought to cause higher growth. Uh, for example, right now in the Trump administration, uh, they're uh, you know pushing in Congress, they're pushing uh, reduction in taxes, uh, reduction in regulation. Those things could cause increases in uh, growth of the economy, but you're still not going to have 
uh, growth rates like you see in emerging markets. Even China now is slowing down well, quite a bit because they're they're a mature economy. Well, in in one of the most predictable things of all time, which still caused a panic, is they dropped from nine to seven percent growth, which which, which which is predictable. Yeah, it's, it's it, been predicted by economists for decades. And and I th- the example I've used in explaining it to to people in the past is is comparing say the U.S. economy to an emerging economy. We won't pick on any one country, but, you know, especially because, again, yeah, I don't know if you can call China an emerging economy anymore. Well, well, it, it was, They've emerged. Uh, yeah, yeah, but it started in 79 yeah. with uh, Deng Xiaoping, and um, it's been slowly taking place, and the big push, I think, was probably uh, in the uh, late 90s and throughout the 2000s. Um, to um, to free up a lot of uh, mm. regulations, uh, but free up government control. But yeah, the the comparison I like to use is you know you're you're looking at two cars, one that's already moving at 100 miles an hour, and one that's moving at 30 miles an hour. And if they're both accelerating, the one at 30 miles per hour can show a higher rate of acceleration because right. it it. it it hasn't gotten up to speed that much. Once you're at 100, 125 miles an hour, it's really... It's, yeah, the it, percentage. You have to, it takes a lot to get a higher percentage. Yeah, to get one more mile per hour out of that speed, it, it takes a lot. Um, because, again, we're already... The U.S. economy is already at speed. Um, and, again, I think that's just... People tend to look at those two numbers side by side and make a, an equivalency that you, you can't really make because they are relative to where the country, uh, you know, if I had entered a, a, a third world country uh, with, with absolutely no industrial economy and if, you know, uh, Ford built three car factories there, you might see 50% GDP growth yeah. because they're starting from nothing. And so 50% is really easy to achieve right. when, when your basis is zero. Right. And analogously with countries, you can have a dirt poor country um, and uh, you could possibly uh, double its GDP within mm. a very short period of time. But to double ours uh, takes a long time. Mm. I mean, it probably takes about uh, 30 years. Yep. And, and yeah, like I say, I think that's one of those kind of common misconceptions is that because two is less than nine or fifty or a hundred, yeah. uh, it's somehow a bad thing. And, yeah, and, again, and it's not. I mean, if yeah, I mean, we, we yeah, I don't know. We probably double ours maybe every I said thirty, maybe every 40, 40 years. But uh, and and that probably I mean really should be considered doing incredibly well. Yeah. That's, that's, uh, that's true. So getting back to again mechanisms for Fed policy, open market operations is I, I probably the one that gets the most notice uh, by you know the average American, but certainly not, I guess, their, their only mechanism. Uh, I guess, uh, you know, getting into something like uh, the discount window. Um, when the, the Fed's function as, as what's called a banker's bank, um, I guess, can, can get into you know how that how those loans are made and why okay just to just to frame uh your question um we've talked only about one tool that the uh, federal reserve can use for policy purposes that is open market operations which is the buying and selling of treasury bills 
in order to affect interest rates and the quantity of money in the economy. Uh, but the Federal Reserve has some other uh, policy tools that it can use, and you mentioned the discount window. Uh, the discount window is a um, means by which banks can borrow from the Federal Reserve, just like a customer would go and borrow from a bank. Uh, so uh, commercial banks um, and bank, bank holding companies uh, now can borrow from, uh, from the Federal Reserve. Now, why would you want to let them borrow from uh, the Federal Reserve? Well, they have uh, a way of borrowing uh, besides the Fed. They can borrow from each other. That's called in the U.S. Um, the federal funds market. Uh, it has nothing to do with fe federal funds, but it was named that because of the, uh, the Fed was used as a go-between when it first started in 1927. But um, they can borrow from each other. But some banks don't have the ability to borrow from another bank because they're small and uh, they don't have a, a reputation uh, that another bank would uh, uh, feel comfortable lending to them. So some banks can go to the Federal Reserve. Now, why would they want to do that? Uh, well, they do that possibly because uh, there's something wrong with liquidity management. They, they have a shortage uh, for some reason uh, in uh, their, cash, their cash flow, for, for instance. Uh, maybe it's the case that they had withdrawals made uh, from depositors and now they don't have enough funds or maybe uh, some of their customers that were borrowers didn't pay them back. So they're short on funds there. So a liquidity problems um, uh, can arise and liquidity management is a very important um, aspect of banking. But one of the ways they can manage their liquidity, a bank can, is by going to the Federal Reserve. So banks do occasionally go there and borrow. Uh, the rate they pay is set by the Federal Reserve. It's an administratively set rate, not a market rate. And uh, the rate that banks charge each other for borrowing is a market rate, uh, even though it's influenced by the Fed. But that rate is called the Fed funds rate. So the discount window rate that is set by the Fed is always set now above the Fed funds rate so that banks have to pay a premium over what they could borrow uh, at from each other. So really it's it's not allowing banks to get some type of cheap funds. They have mm. to pay quite a bit for it. Uh, but the Fed makes it available. Now that you may think why would they want to have that type of policy? Well to help banks to manage their liquidity, particularly uh, small banks. But the really the big reason that the discount window exists is not because of day-to-day -day liquidity management, but rather when we come upon a financial crisis mm. or, or what we might call a liquidity crisis because like the recent financial crisis it's a situation where banks find themselves short on funds that is depositors might not want to make deposits uh, corporations or companies might want to draw more uh, on their credit lines so that banks find themselves short of liquidity uh, during these types of types of crises macro liquidity, that is liquidity for the whole um, banking system or the whole uh, country, tends to dry up. So if banks have nowhere to go, what they will do is they will start not allowing uh, companies to, to get loans. Uh, and as a result, it will cause a, a recession or a deeper uh, financial crisis. 
Uh, and we've had plenty of those during the 1800s and mm. before the Federal Reserve started. In fact, this is the reason the Federal Reserve initially came into being in 1913 was to avert liquidity crisis by lending to banks during these crisis periods. So that's why the discount window uh, mainly now uh, is useful because it provides banks a source of liquidity temporarily uh, until financial markets get back uh, to normal again. And so it played a big role uh, during uh, this uh, last financial crisis. Mm. So that's the, that's the discount window. So that's a tool that mainly is used inter intermittently by banks for, for their own personal liquidity management, but more importantly, for macro liquidity management uh, to help out the whole banking system. And, and of course, if anybody's wondering out there why a bank might have a liquidity crisis, um, probably your best resource is to uh, listen to George Bailey from It's a Wonderful Life explain where all the money is. Because, I mean, that is, that, that, that is actually, it's, it's a, a funny example, but it is a straight example of a bank with a liquidity crisis. The, the money is in Bill's house and, and, and George's house. But there's, there's also a, a very good source um, by Charles Kindleberger. Uh, it's a book, uh, and the recent version is by Kindleberger and Alber, uh, or Alba, I think his name is. And the name of it is Manias, Panics, and Crashes, A History of Financial Crises in the World. Hmm. So you might take a look at that. It's actually a fun book to, uh, to read. Well, and, and uh, like you had said, you know, th this is one of those Fed, uh, Federal Reserve uh, tools that comes about as the result of, uh, in reaction to things that were actually happening. And, and I think, you know, especially uh, for, for people my age who uh, grew up in kind of the, the tail end of uh, the, you know, uh, Chairman Paul Volcker's bid to get control over inflation, I, I have vague memories of, of concerns over runaway inflation, but for most of my life, that's never really been a concern because the, the, the Fed's actually pretty good at, at keeping things fairly smooth. And, and so you start to wonder, well, you know, why, why does a discount window, banks never have liquidity crises? That's, uh, but, 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 they, but they do. But they do. Yeah. We had uh, a big liquidity crisis. Uh, well, we have many uh, liquidity crises, usually as an, the economy starts slowing down. Uh, for example, as you mentioned, Volcker, uh, in the late 70s and early 80s, um, when uh, the Fed funds rate uh, went up, I believe it was something like at 16% for a short while. Mm. Uh, but uh, there, these types of liquidity crises arise. Um, there was one in uh, uh, 87 with the stock market crash. Uh, there was uh, a liquidity crisis uh, in the early 90s uh, when new capital requirements were put in place. Um, uh, there was a liquidity crisis during the uh, long-term capital management uh, debacle in the uh, uh, fall of 1998. Uh, uh, during uh, 2000, uh, when the um, dot-com mm. crisis came up, uh, and then, of course, in 2007, when our financial crisis uh, began 
And I think uh, I didn't mention during the uh, late 80s and early 90s, that problem was as a result of the savings and loan yeah. crisis that we have. So we these are all liquidity crises <laughs> that come up where financial institutions like banks have a hard time raising cash. Well, and again, it's, it you know, if, if to me it goes to uh, if you've ever been in, you know, really any setting that has a, a list of posted rules and a few of them seem oddly specific. Uh, the reason is because somebody tried to do that before. Yeah. Um, same thing with, with, again, the Fed tools. If you're wondering why the Fed has a given you know, tool or ability, it's probably you know, addressing a specific problem that's come up before. Um, uh, so, yeah, I mean, as far as the, uh, the, the discount window, uh, got that. Oh, there are, there are other two other uh, tools that are used required reserves and. Um, well, and that's yeah, that, uh, yeah. Moving on to the next tool of, of reserve policy, uh, which is again the the required reserve. Um, you know, generally, why why would the Fed want to? Or I guess first off, what is the required reserve? Yeah, well, okay. Well, reserves. When we talk about reserves, they're bank reserves. Mm -hmm. So this is cash that bank is uh, bank is holding on its asset side. It's cash that it either has in its vault or in its account uh, at, the, uh, at the Fed because we mentioned uh, the Fed is a banker's bank. So a bank uh, can keep, commercial bank can keep cash there just like you can keep cash uh, in, um, uh, in a commercial bank. Uh, so when they hold cash, when a bank holds cash, it's not money. I and mean, we don't consider it money because they're not spending it. Mm -hmm. So if they hold it, we call these reserves. and. Um, uh, it's Fed policy open market operations that are affecting bank reserves. When you end up uh, buying uh, uh, treasury bills, when the Fed does from a commercial bank, or really an uh, investment bank, uh, which then buys it from a commercial bank, but when they buy these uh, securities, they're giving a bank more reserves. Mm -hmm. So they have more reserves that they can lend out and causes interest rates to fall. When they're selling treasury bills to pull money out of the economy, they're pulling bank reserves away. So reserves, bank reserves, are a very important indicator of what is going on with Fed policy. So the Fed tries to keep track of uh, the demand for reserves so that uh, when they conduct open market operations, they can figure out the effect on interest rates and on uh, cash that's in the economy uh, and how people are reacting to it by trying to figure out how they're affecting bank reserves. Mm. In other words, if they're throwing uh, money out by uh, buying treasury bills, open market operations again, uh, banks have more reserves. Now, the intention of the Fed probably is to get banks to lend that out to cause the economy to grow. But what if banks decide they're gonna hold cash because they demand more reserves because there's some uncertainty in the economy. Mm -hmm. Then that Fed policy results in nothing in the economy other than the holding of more cash by banks. In fact, this is what happened during the financial crisis. The Fed threw out enormous amounts of money, but banks held on to it because it was too risky for them to make loans in an uncertain environment. So uh, the demand for reserves is very important for the Fed to gauge uh, the demand by commercial banks. 
And that demand can go up, it could go down. So they have to figure out well, what it is. Mm -hmm. And um, so that's, that's the importance of reserves. It used to be the case that we have, uh, the Fed relied on a tool called required reserves, uh, which is a throwback from the Great Depression back in uh, the 30s, 1930s. Uh, when it was thought that the reason that banks um, crashed at that time uh, and there were runs on banks, uh, uh, they didn't have money, uh, again referring to this movie, It's a Wonderful Life, uh, with Jimmy Stewart, uh, that banks had runs. Uh, people would come in, try to pull out their money, and there wasn't enough money. And Jimmy Stewart will explain to you why there isn't <laughs> enough money if you watch that movie. But they don't, banks don't have all of that cash on hand. So uh, Congress, uh, in their uh, wisdom or ill wisdom, required uh, commercial banks to hold a certain amount of reserves. So we call these reserve requirements, which we've uh, had for banks since the 1930s. And, and in that... And actually before that, to some extent. Jimmy Stewart and the Bailey Billing and Loan now has to take a certain percentage of, of their books and hold that as cash. In uh, of, of their uh, deposits, yeah. uh, of like checking accounts, a certain percent of checking accounts that they have, they have to hold it as cash. But banks have learned uh, over the last uh, 25 years to go around those reserve requirements by, uh, for example, doing what are called sweep accounts, offering uh, corporations initially the means to um, to take uh, their checking account uh, money and sweep it into a savings account at night. <laughs> so now, and then pay the company interest. And of course the company will say, oh yeah, we want that. Uh, but what it does is it avoids the, avoids the reserve requirement because then there are fewer checking accounts that the bank has, so they don't have to hold uh, as many reserves mm -hmm. uh, based on that, those checking accounts. So it's gotten to the point where in the 2000s, uh, there were a couple of big banks that were holding uh, zero uh, <laughs> reserves or close to zero uh, required reserves. And uh, so they were going around that policy so the, the Fed couldn't uh, figure out what their demand for reserves was because they were avoiding uh, the, the, the holding of required reserves. So now uh, the banks, uh, the Federal Reserve, starting in, uh, I believe it was 2008, middle of 2008, started paying interest uh, on reserves uh, to force banks to hold uh, reserves uh, so that they can figure out or force banks to have a certain demand for reserves. In other words, if you pay them interest, you can always pay them on high enough interest uh, so that the bank will actually hold those reserves and will not lend them out. Or you can lower that interest rate and it encourages banks to lend them out. So you can actually use that reserve policy to manipulate how many reserves banks hold. Mm. This is really important, especially now that a lot of people uh, complained, uh, a lot of commentators complained that, oh, there's so much liquidity, so much cash in the banking system. What if they suddenly lent that out to, to customers? It would cause a huge credit expansion and inflation, and it would ruin the economy. Have a quick uh, uh, increase in the growth rate, but then an inflation that would cause trouble. Well, that's never going to happen because the Fed can always crank up the interest rate it pays on those reserves and lock those reserves up at banks. I mean, sure, banks could say, oh, we don't want to, to, to make a profit here. We just want to 
lend out a bunch of money and cause havoc, you know? Yeah, that, that sounds like banks. Yeah, but, but they're, we, they're not going to do we, that. We don't want to make a profit, of course. Yeah, they're, they're, they're not going to do that. So, you know, the, the Federal Reserve has that tool mm. of paying interest uh, on reserves to lock up as much of those reserves uh, that it wants or let out reserves at whatever rate it wants. And so it can use that along with open market operations to better control uh, the holding of reserves and how those reserves go out to the economy in terms of loans. Mm. So that's, uh, this is a very important uh, tool uh, in terms of reserve policy that the Federal Reserve uses now instead of required reserves, though so it still has required reserves in place. Um, but uh, but it doesn't use required reserves as a tool for policy mm. anymore. Which I mean, from the sound of it, it, it shifts to a, a a a mechanism that's harder to circumvent because it it starts speaking to uh, you know actual demand from banks. Well, it it relies on prices yeah. on the price of reserves. That is the interest rate rather than a quantity restriction mm. uh, that required reserves have because you can go around a quantity restriction but it, you can't go around a price restriction. Yeah. Or, uh, or I guess you wouldn't want to. Uh, uh, you haven't, you, you, the price is the incentive to yep. do what the Fed wants them to do. Whereas the quantity restriction, they try to, you know, avoid that because it, uh, it's, uh, required reserves are like a tax. Mm. Uh, you have to hold the reserves as cash uh, the bank does, uh, but uh, it, yet it has to pay to to get deposits, and it, it can't lend out those reserves. So it's a non-income earning asset that is like a like a tax that is imposed on it. Mm -hmm. So that's why banks have been complaining, planning to get rid of the required reserve ratio for a long time, and that's why they've developed these sweep accounts to go around this whole mm -hmm. thing. Uh, and now that uh, there's a, a interest paid on reserves, uh, the Fed doesn't have to worry about banks doing that. All right. And then, uh, you know, the, 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 I think the final big mechanism that the, the Fed has is, and, and <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm sure people out there will hear this and think, well, you know, that's not really a, a tool. It's just a, you know, a way of communicating the tool, but is uh, communications policy, but I, that goes to kind of the when going back to the the big bat that the Fed swings. Uh, communications policy is a tool in and of itself, simply because the Fed saying they're going to do something can impact the whole you know macro economy. Yeah, this communications policy has uh, really been. I mean, it was advocated by um, by economists uh, starting during the Volcker uh, administration uh, and Fed policy during the uh, 80s and uh, really pushed uh, more during the 90s with Greenspan, uh, but it's really come to, um, uh, to a, a, a large-scale use um, once um, the Fed brought down interest rates, uh, the Fed funds rate, to almost zero uh, during this financial crisis. And um, uh, it, it, communications policy basically uh, has a background or a theory that is set up something like this, that people don't care when interest rates go up or down. What they care about is what they will be doing in the future. Mm. Will they be going up or down? In fact, in my uh, 
my Fed class um, uh, several years ago, uh, there were two um, women in the class that after the break, uh, they were talking about some things and I wanted to get started. And I said, what are you, what are you two talking about? And, uh, and one of them said, well, there's a, we're just talking about a sale uh, in shoes uh, that's going to be at a certain store and uh, whether we should go there and, and buy them. And I said, well, okay, the price dropped, uh, but are you going there because the price has, dro has dropped? And they said, yes, of course, the price has gone down, so we're gonna go, go you know, buy some more shoes. Well, I said, aren't you really going there because you think that the price is going to go back up to, to its original price? And uh, they said, yeah, well, that's really how uh, Fed policy uh, works. Uh, when interest rates, when the Fed brings interest rates up, for example, that they've been doing recently, uh, uh, since um, when December of, uh, December of 15? Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, when they bring interest rates up, are people going to then say, oh, now we shouldn't uh, buy any houses, we shouldn't take out any loans, interest rates are going, have gone up. No, you're going to ask the question, is that a signal that interest rates are going to be going up even more in the future? If they are, then I want to take out a loan now. Yeah. So really, Fed policy has always relied on changes in the current interest rate being uh, an indicator of expectations of future interest rates. And they try to signal by saying, okay, we, we, we increase rates uh, over the last uh, six months or over the last year to get the market to believe that they will continue increasing rates. So markets will, will rely on an expectation of rising interest rates. It's a matter of how big that rise is. There have been, in, in the past, signals that the Greenspan um, uh, administration, the Fed, uh, have uh, given where they tell the market nothing. Mm. They just raise rates and let the markets try to figure out what that means for future policy. And so Greenspan was known for being um, very secretive and trying to signal the market in ways that were not always clear. Um, in fact, there was a joke about uh, uh, Greenspan that he was so secretive and uh, tried to uh, tell markets things in such very subtle ways uh, that uh, when, when he uh, proposed to his uh, wife, Andrea Mitchell, uh, she jokingly said that, well, he proposed to me three times before I realized what he was actually saying <laughs> uh, or asking. And, uh, and so Greenspan conducted policy in that particular way. Bernanke uh, has been much more open with policy and trying to signal exactly what they're trying to do in the future. In particular, they're making forecasts, they're telling you what their forecasts are and why they're going to change interest rates based on those forecasts. Now, uh, when Bernanke first started this in uh, 2006, when, beginning of 2006, when he took over and started cranking interest rates uh, up and then uh, bringing them back down uh, again because there was, uh, it, it seemed like uh, there was a, a slowdown in the economy starting, uh, he was criticized for not being clear in terms of what he's doing. Merely because the, uh, uh, the, the uh, media 
didn't understand that he was now conducting policy based on uh, on, on forecasts, mm. on expected outcomes, and then he was trying to tell the economy, this is what we're doing based on that. But now the forecasts have changed. If the forecasts are now different, then policy has to be different. But that didn't always go um, across uh, very clear in the media. Uh, and um, uh, when interest rates were down to zero, uh, he was making statements uh, like, they will continue to stay at zero for this period of time because now you can no longer use a drop in interest rates to signal that there will be further drops mm -hmm. because you can't take them below zero. Mm -hmm. So now you have to start communicating. So even though communication policy can occur when interest rates are not zero, it's a must when they're zero. Yeah. There's nothing else you can do <laughs> besides uh, doing QEs, which mm -hmm. we, could, we could talk about also. But communications policy has always taken place since the, the 80s. It's just now that it's ramped up to a level to where the Fed clearly is stating to the markets what it will do. In fact, it finds out that it can get a better outcome uh, in the economy if it tells the markets what it's doing rather than to be secretive. Mm -hmm. Just like Greenspan could have got a, a better outcome in terms of marrying Andrea Mitchell quicker. <laughs> would have happened clear, earlier. Yeah, and told her what, what his intentions were. But uh, we've, we, we think now, uh, economists, that, uh, that the outcome can be much better and, and controlled much better if we actually communicate better with markets in terms of the intentions of policy because future purchases and investments that are made by businesses today um, uh, can be planned for the future in a much better way if they know or have some idea of the future outcome mm -hmm. of interest rates. Well, and, and I mean, speaking of, of interest rates into the future, uh, yeah, I mean, for... Uh, a decent period, you know, the, we, we spent at the at the zero bound. Uh, the, the Fed is now talking about uh, increasing. We've gone up. Um, I think the light was 25, yeah, uh, 20, basis, 25 basis points recently, yeah. um, which, uh, you know, de de depending on which publication you read, people either rejoiced at or, you know, uh, predicted the end of the U.S. economy because of a quarter of a percentage point. Um, but, I, I mean, to a certain degree, that was somewhat necessary because of the, I, I guess, how sustainable is a zero-bound interest rate? Well, if you keep interest rates extremely low, money, uh, to borrow, borrow money, is very cheap. Mm -hmm. And if it's very cheap, you're not going to necessarily make uh, good decisions on how you make investments if you're a company. Because uh, uh, if uh, the out, uh, you're going to you're going to get you'll have access to funds easier, so you'll have more funds. And then when you go to invest these in various projects, well, you always pick the highest earning projects early, uh, and then you go to those that don't earn as much, and you keep on going until the earnings on your investment projects that you want to get into are just equal to the interest rate or just above the interest rate that you're borrowing at. But after a while, you start running out of reasonable projects and you take, start taking actually more risks. Mm -hmm. Also, when interest rates are low and, and, and the return on a lot of projects are low, uh, 
uh, if you're a bank uh, and you're you're lending, you're lending to borrowers that uh, are don't want to pay you back much because interest rates are really low. How do you make a profit as a bank? Well, you start taking more risks. You start going into borrowers that take more risks and can pay you a higher return. And that's not good for you as a bank. Mm -hmm. It's not good for the financial system. It's not good for the economy. So keeping interest rates low for too long of a period tends to encourage uh, risk-taking by banks. Uh, and uh, it, it funnels funds uh, into corporations or co even small companies uh, that are uh, getting involved in projects that are not very viable, mm -hmm. at least not in a, a longer run period. So keeping interest rates uh, at zero uh, tends to encourage all kinds of risky behavior. Uh, and so we don't want to do that. Uh, but when interest rates, uh, if I can just no. go, go off and, no. and, and talk briefly about this, when they are at zero, uh, normally you think you can't do anything uh, in terms of uh, Fed policy because it no normally affects uh, interest rates by doing the open market operations. Well, if interest rates are at zero, then there's nothing you can do because uh, you can't encourage the economy to grow any, any, any more than that. But as, as I mentioned earlier, the open market operations are done using treasury bills. Uh, usually um, uh, uh, treasury bills are in maturity of under one year, but usually they get into uh, something like uh, three-month treasury bills mm -hmm. or two-month treasury bills, uh, so they're affecting short-term interest rates. So when we say that we're at zero bound or at zero interest rates, that's for short-term rates. Yeah. Very short-term rates that are only a couple of months. But long-term rates, that is long maturity rates going out uh, past a year, five years, 10 years, 30 years, the rate, those rates uh, are not zero. And they don't go to zero even during this financial uh, crisis that we went through. They are still positive and higher. Uh, than uh, much higher than uh, than short-term rates. So um, uh, I, I should mention at this point that even though the Federal Reserve conducts a policy policy of uh, say bringing down short-term rates to try to encourage economic growth when we're in a recession, they do so because ultimately their goal is to bring down longer-term rates. Mm -hmm. Because most investment decisions, and real investment, that uh, capital investment, uh, structure investment that companies make, that's done at borrowing longer term. They borrow at five years, for example, 10 years. And if you're building up, I don't know, an auto plant or a steel mill, you're borrowing at 20 or 30 years. Mm -hmm. so, so longer maturity rates are really what the Fed wants to affect. To affect spending in the economy. Also for consumers, households buying houses. I mean, th those are 30-year mortgages or 15-year mortgages, mm -hmm. though they tend to, um, uh, people sell their homes uh, or refinance, and so on average, the 10-year uh, treasury bill is a good benchmark for the rates uh, for uh, homes, for houses. But again, the Fed wants to affect long-term rates. Well, how do they do that? if they're conducting policy on short-term rates. Well, whenever you bring the short-term rates down, the people that were into short-term uh, treasury bills, they start moving into higher maturity because they don't want those low rates. Mm -hmm. 
And as like pension funds or individuals or companies that are buying treasury bills, they start moving into higher maturities. As they move into those, they supply more funds in those areas and it brings down interest rates on longer term maturities. So short term rates affect long term rates. That's why the Fed uh, uses short term policy or short term rates to affect long term rates. Mm. Well, why don't they just affect long term rates directly? instead of going through this business of uh, short-term affecting long-term? Well, they do so because they have to worry about when they go into a market to buy and sell T-bills, whether that market is liquid. If it's very liquid, that is, there's a lot of buyers and sellers in that market, then, and the dollar amounts are very large, they can precisely affect the interest rates they want to affect. But if that market is not liquid, that is, there are not very many buyers and sellers, then when they go into a market, they can cause interest rates to swing mm. by large amounts and they cannot control them as well. That's why getting better control means going into the short-term market to affect long-term rates. Okay, given that, when they get to a zero short-term rate policy, well, they still want, still want to affect longer-term rates, but now they can't pull down short-term rates anymore. So how do you get long-term rates to come down? Well, that's where QE comes in. That is quantitative easing. Quantitative easing is merely the purchase of longer-term securities, like treasuries. Uh, so that's what the Fed did. They actually went in and started buying 10-year, 5-year, 10-year, 20-year, 30-year uh, Treasury um, notes and bonds in order to bring down long-term rates directly because they could no longer affect long-term rates through short-term rates. Mm. That's why they did it. Now, some people said, well, that's throwing out money. That's, that's going to cause an inflation. Well, when you do any open market operation, as we described earlier, of buying treasury bills, that throws money into the economy. So this does also. It just does it through longer maturity uh, treasuries rather than the short term. So there's no difference. It's still like an open market operation. The Fed is doing the same thing that it's done all along, that it's been doing since, you know, since its inception, or really since the 1920s or, mm -hmm. or 30s. Uh, it's doing the same thing, yeah, but, but, but a lot of politicians have used uh, the misconception that somehow this is causing a huge expansion of money or throwing out money. No, it does it throws out no more than you would throw out if you bought a short-term mm -hmm. uh, treasury. But by attacking that long-term uh, interest rate directly, you can actually have an effect that you wouldn't be able to have otherwise. So this allows the Federal Reserve to have a, a, a policy that can actually uh, benefit the economy by bringing down long-term rates when they don't have the tool of short-term rates to do it. Mm -hmm. So that's important. It's important that you can do that when short-term rates go to zero, and it doesn't do anything more with throwing out money. So, I mean, the, the, the risks of, of multiple rounds of QE, or QE in general, uh, sound like, I mean, basically the same as the, you know, the, the risks inherent with open market operations. In general. It's, yes, you are running the risk of 
you know, creating inflationary effects, but... But during a recession, you're yeah. not, you're not going to do that. And, and I think, yeah, you know, once in the midst of the crisis, they, they you know, giving quantitative easing a, a name gave it something that could then be, you know, this is a unique policy and, and, but, but and then be attacked. But it's really no different. I mean, in the, in the sense how it was used uh, in some ways might be a little different. I mentioned that QE was used to buy longer maturity treasury mm-hmm. uh, notes and bonds. But um, it was also used to buy mortgage-backed securities. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that policy uh, was done uh, for two purposes. One, it was to bring down the interest rates that were associated uh, with uh, mortgage-backed securities and would encourage more securitization of mortgages, that is, <clears throat> of, um, of getting more funding in the uh, mortgage market so that it could encourage more house buying. And that's what uh, the Federal Reserve was trying to do. That's one uh, uh, focus of its, uh, of its uh, QE policy of buying mortgage-backed securities. And the second is that uh, commercial banks and investment banks held huge amounts of mortgage-backed securities in which there was a lot of uncertainty surrounding their value. As a result, it prevented banks from being able to borrow funds and give loans because uh, those banks were thought of as very risky because of the unknown value of the securities, mortgage-backed securities, they were holding on their asset side of the balance sheet. So the Fed used QE to pull those mortgage-backed securities away from banks, give them cash, so that uh, the value of bank um, assets would be stable and known uh, so that those banks could recover. In a way, what it was doing is shifting the risk away from banks and towards the Fed. Mm. But the thing is that a bank can only put up with risk for short periods of time. And then after that, it could fall apart as a result of that risk and no one, no one wanting to lend to it. Uh, but the Fed can hang on to that risk for a long period of time because eventually those mortgage-backed securities, more than likely, they would have paid off. At, mm. least, at least the prime uh, MBSs, mortgage-backed securities, they would have paid off. So the Fed actually, when they purchased those securities, they knew they were going to make something off of it. And the Federal Reserve made a huge profit. Uh, off of those mortgage-backed securities, which of course is then given to the Treasury. Well, yeah. So, um, uh, so uh, it, you know, QE was a good thing, a good policy uh, during a period in which there was uh, a slowdown and uh, long-term rates could not be affected any other way. In fact, a similar policy was used during the Kennedy administration. Um, in the early 60s. It mm-hmm. was called Operation Twist. Which, it, uh, always one of my favorites, if for no other reason than the name. Yeah, it, it, uh, the purpose uh, of it, if, if you, uh, you have to refer to what is called a twisting of the yield curve. The yield curve is the interest rate uh, on short-term maturities and interest rates on longer-term maturities. So if you have, you know, on the vertical axis, I don't want to get into graphing, but the vertical axis, if you have interest rates and then you have the term to maturity on the horizontal axis, it's an upward sloped line. Mm-hmm. And that's what we call a yield curve, where the interest rates usually for short-term uh, treasuries are shorter or, or lower than for longer-term treasuries. So Operation Twist was a type of QE that did this. 
Uh, it wanted to bring down long-term rates, but it didn't want to throw a lot of money out into the economy. That is, it wanted to keep the amount of money in the economy basically the same and just affect rates. So the, the, it did this. It sold securities for short-term, short-term securities, and caused short-term rates to rise. And uh, they used those funds then to buy long-term securities to cause long-term interest rates to fall. So it caused that upwards sloped graph to twist mm -hmm. in the middle uh, and uh, thereby bring long-term rates uh, down because it mainly wanted to affect long-term rates without affecting uh, the amount of money in the economy. And actually the Fed uh, during uh, 2008, I believe it was, uh, did a similar mm -hmm. Uh, conducted a similar type of policy initially, but then eventually it just uh, threw out uh, a lot of money to buy uh, long maturity uh, securities because uh, that was the only way it could affect long-term rates. Yeah. So that's, you know, that's really what the QE and the Operation Twist uh, 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 were all about, about uh, conducting policy in a very unusual environment yeah. of, of zero interest rates, but yet still needing to help out uh, banks uh, become more liquid and uh, helping out growth in the economy. Uh, and, and so that's what, that's what the Fed did. And I, I mean, that, that really covers not just the Fed's kind of typical tools, but also, uh, you know, they're, they're more unique. Uh, uh, yeah, they're more unique ones. Um, so I, I guess you know the, the the takeaway because because again you know people get a view of what the Fed does through I, I think a very limited uh, window uh, filtered through a lot of people who don't understand what the Fed does um, and I, you know the, with, with each of these uh, one of the reasons I wanted to you know go through each one and and go into again the benefits from it the the risks from it and then why the Fed would want to you know impact you know engage in that policy is kind of getting around to this idea that you know the the Fed may do things that seem good or bad from from a certain perspective you know for the either you as an individual or the economy as a whole but they're not doing them for nefarious reasons right there there's always right. the, the there are always distributional effects that some people are going to be hurt with any type of policy whether it be federal reserve policy mm -hmm. or fiscal policy or anything but that's not that's not the intention mm -hmm. in fact a lot of uh, advocates of doing away with the fed uh the the alternative uh, is what they really need to think about. And the alternative is that Congress and the president would be controlling the money supply. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you look at almost any country in which you've had that political influence on the money supply, uh, for example, in South America in the, uh, in the 90s, uh, late 80s and early 90s, uh, Asia, like in Thailand uh, during the 80s, in early 90s, you'll you'll see that there are huge inflations that come out of those countries that then they have a hard time getting rid of, mm -hmm. and and so well, the alternative is is much much worse. Well, and again, in yeah, in those scenarios, you you have this, and and Mari and I had gotten into this is you have this problem where no one has the incentive, no one in that dynamic has the incentive to be. Um, 
you know the the mature adult when it oh, comes because it's all short run. It's yeah. all a matter of of giving benefit as a politician to yourself in the short run by printing money and spending it in your district or in the whole economy. Whereas the Fed governors uh, are in there for um, uh, for a long period of time. Yeah, I think fourteen years. Yeah, 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 fourteen years. Uh, and even though the chair, um, it's every four years, mm -hmm. uh, you, the chair goes through a process of, uh, of appointment and, and uh, confirmation by the Senate. But since they're in there so long of a period, they don't have short-run incentives. Politicians do. Mm -hmm. And that's why you want to pull uh, responsibility for money supply and interest rates away from politicians. Well, it's, it, it is, I mean... It, even though uh, what the Fed was created in 1913, mm -hmm. um, you know it, it's still very much along the lines of the the founding of, of our government in that it's a check and balance. The Fed gets to control the money, some, uh, the monetary policy, and the and Congress gets co to control the fiscal policy, and they both have to kind of get along well together. And Congress ultimately can do away with the Fed if they mm. really wanted to, but I think that they realize, or they should realize, that to do so or to put big restrictions on the Fed uh, would actually hurt politicians. Mm. Uh, no, I mean, well, it, you know, when, so I guess when, yeah, when, if, if you're, uh, one, of the, one of my listeners out there and you see an article or a, a talking head on the news talking about the, the Fed trying to tank the economy or uh, Fed going after lower income. That, no, that, those are distributional yeah, effects that they can't avoid by conducting a policy that's aimed at the national economy, yeah. not at specific regions or specific groups of individuals. Absolutely. And I think that's the big takeaway. Well, Professor, thank you for coming on the show. Um, I appreciate your time. Uh, real quick, is there, uh, for if listeners out there are, are curious to learn more, are there any good uh, text, resources, articles, anything you'd recommend? I would, uh, I mean, just for uh, a person that knows a, a little bit about uh, economics, or if you don't know that much about it, um, the Federal Reserve District, district Banks, uh, there are 12 of them, uh, they have uh, newsletters uh, in which it's usually about uh, three or four pages in which you can read about various uh, topics uh, that, that have to do not just with monetary policy, but um, uh, unemployment, um, uh, banks, uh, regional issues. Uh, uh, you can get uh, onto uh, their websites uh, or the Board of Governors, they have a website also. But uh, you can get, get onto these websites and look for these uh, newsletters that they, they put out for, uh, you know, just the common person hmm. uh, to learn about various issues. And they're short and give you, a, um, I think, a pretty good overall view of what the issues actually are. Mm -hmm. uh, and again, it's not about opinion here. This is about good arguments and evidence to back things up. So I, I would uh, suggest people reading that. Outstanding. Uh, well, thank you very much, and uh, thanks to everyone out there for listening. Uh, remember to subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes. Uh, be sure to spread the word. Anybody you know that might uh, enjoy this podcast, let them know and have them uh, like or, uh, subscribe, rate, and review. Uh, and don't forget that you can find us on Facebook if you'd like to comment on this episode or make suggestions for future episodes. Uh, that being said, I'm Dave Yost, and this is OK. Let me tell you why you're wrong. <laughs>